0: From WHYY in Philadelphia, I'm Terry Gross with Fresh Air. Today we continue our week-long series of some of our favorite music interviews from our archive. We'll hear several interviews recorded with the late Charlie Hayden, one of the greatest bass players in the history of jazz. Hayden grew up singing in his family's country music radio shows, but turned to the bass when polio damaged his vocal cords. He helped lead a musical revolution in the late 50s and early 60s, performing in the Ornette Coleman Quartet. He formed his own jazz bands, but also returned to traditional music when he recorded with his triplet daughters, wife, and son. Interviews with Charlie Hayden spanning 1983 to 2008, coming up on Fresh Air. Today, we'll hear several interviews with Charlie Hayden, the preeminent bass player of his generation and one of the greatest bass players in the history of jazz. We'll hear interviews spanning from 1983 to 2008. He died in 2014. Hayden played a remarkable range of music. He was born in Shenandoah, Iowa, and grew up in Missouri. From the age of two until he was 15, he sang on his family's country music radio show. He had to stop singing when polio affected his vocal cords. That's when he got serious about playing bass. Although he was brought up on traditional music, he made his reputation in jazz, helping lead a musical revolution in the late 1950s and early 60s as a member of the Ornette Coleman Quartet. In 1969, he launched his own group, the Liberation Music Orchestra, which performed music inspired by liberation movements around the world. In the 80s, he founded the group Quartet West, drawing inspiration from film noir and jazz and pop singers of the 40s and 50s. In 2008, he made an album with his three daughters, his wife and son, performing the kind of country music he sang as a child. Here's Hayden in 1959, featured on the groundbreaking Ornette Coleman Quartet album, The Shape of Jazz to Come. This is Ornette Coleman's composition, Lonely Woman, with Charlie Hayden on bass. first time I spoke with Charlie Hayden in 1983, I asked him what kind of jazz he was playing before he met Ornette Coleman. Bebop and uh, blues and standards and bird tunes,
1: loving every minute of it, learning the language. It was very exciting. And at one point, when I was first beginning to do that in Los Angeles, I started to hear other things to play when it would come time for me to solo, and I wanted sometimes to play on the inspiration that a tune that I received from a certain composition instead of on the chord structure, but when I tried to do this, a lot of musicians wouldn't know where I was, and they would become very upset with me. So I had to be careful when I did this because I didn't want to have any hard feelings. But I was definitely hearing other ways of improvising. Um, I wasn't satisfied so much with playing just on chord structures. Then I met someone who was doing this as a way of life. It was Ornette, and it was like a revelation to me because here was someone who was playing this way as a way of life. He was playing this way years before I had met him, and he invited me to his apartment, his little room in LA, and this was in 1957. I was uh, 19 years old, and we, played all day long, and he had a room full of music strewn all over the floor, the walls, the ceiling. He was constantly writing music, and he told me before we started to play, he said, Charlie, I've written these pieces now, and here's the chord changes. Now, these are the chord changes that I heard inside myself when I was writing the melody, but these are just a guide for you. I want you to be inspired from them and create your own chord structure from the inspiration or from the feeling of what I've written. And that way, constantly, a new chord structure will be uh, evolving, and we will be constantly modulating, and we'll be listening to each other, and we will make some exciting music. And that's exactly what happened.
0: Were you surprised at how controversial the music was when you started playing it? You know, A lot of people couldn't couldn't handle it at all, musicians, listeners.
1: I was very involved in learning about the playing. We were all involved because it was a brand-new language, uh, we didn't even think of it as being a brand-new language. We we only thought of it as we're hearing something and we got to play it. There was a lot of controversy around us when we opened up at the Fight Spot in New York. Fights used to break out right in the club. People would be putting us down. People would be praising us. The club was packed every night with everybody from different parts of the art world, painters, famous writers, uh, filmmakers, dancers. Musicians, I would look out, in. Uh, and standing at the bar would be Paul Chambers, Percy Heath, <sighs> Charlie Mingus, and they would be looking dead in my eye, you know, and uh, saying, okay, what are you going to do? Uh, I would be playing and have my eyes closed, and one night I opened my eyes, and there was Leonard Bernstein with his ear glued to the front of my instrument. And I looked over at Arnett, I said, what is this? He says, I'll tell you later. And uh, then we were invited to Leonard Bernstein's table. He invited us to the... Philharmonic rehearsals, and he couldn't believe that I was self-taught, and he wanted to try and and get me to study music. And he was very helpful in me getting a Guggenheim Fellowship ten years later in composition. It was like that every night. It was very exciting. Uh, the violence wasn't exciting. I mean, people. I, one guy set somebody's car on fire one night. I remember somebody came back in the kitchen. We were standing talking with Ornette, and I won't say who it was, and hit Ornette in the face. You know. I mean, it was really. New things were happening, not only in music, but in people's minds every night from that music.
0: We'll hear more of my 1983 interview with Charlie Hayden later in the show. Let's hear him on the Ornette Coleman album Change of the Century, which was released in 1960. This track, Ramblin', features one of Hayden's most famous solos, on which, in a nod to his country music roots, he quotes the song Old Joe Clark. (laughs) ¶¶ Charlie Hayden became famous for playing revolutionary jazz with Ornette Coleman, he started a group in 1969 playing music inspired by political revolutionary movements. He called it the Liberation Music Orchestra. The group's first album included a Hayden original called Song for Che. He was arrested for playing it when he performed it with Ornette Coleman in Portugal in 1971. At the time, the country was led by the authoritarian prime minister Marcello Caetano. Hayden told me the story when we spoke in 1983.
1: We were playing with the uh, Newport Jazz Festival tour of Europe, which included Duke Ellington's band and Miles Davis and a lot of people, Giants of Jazz, which included Art Blakey and Monk and Sonny Stitt and Al McKibben and Kay Winding, Dizzy Gillespie. and It was really a very exciting tour, but the last... uh, place that we were playing out of fourteen countries was in Portugal and I went to Ornette as soon as I saw it on the itinerary and I said I'm not playing and he said well we've signed the contract we should play you know you'll get me in trouble if we don't play so I decided to play but what I did was we played one of my uh, we played Song for Che on the concert and before we played it I dedicated it to the black liberation movements in Mozambique and Angola and guinea bissau it was in a hockey stadium in Cascais outside of, of Lisbon and there were 20,000 people there, most of whom were young students and uh, and were ready to hear something like that. And they started chanting, and uh, all hell broke loose as soon as I made the dedication and police were running around with machine guns and trying to get order. And There was cheering. You couldn't even hear the song. There was so much cheering. We were playing uh, for an audience also that were in sympathy with Caetano. There were people there in $10 seats who were uh, in sympathy with uh, what was happening with the fascist, uh, regime. And those are the people I didn't want to play for. And I wanted them to know why I wouldn't have been able to live with myself if I played and not done anything. So the thing that happened was what I had feared would happen was that I was arrested afterwards. And at the airport, they took me into custody and took me to the political headquarters of the PIDE and, uh, interrogated me through the night and, I was very frightened and very scared and I guess that's the most frightened I've ever been.
0: What they interrogate you about? What they want to know? Well,
1: I mean, what they really wanted to do was to to beat me up, to make me see that I can't do that.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, I'm a foreigner and they are land invading their privacy and their their political ideology and I have no right to do that. They were very upset, you know. They knew that I was an American jazz musician and I had an American passport. It's one of the first things I said, you know, when they arrested me. I said, listen, I have an American passport. Call my embassy. And the guy looked at me, one of the plainclothes men, and he said, uh, this is a Sunday, and the American embassy is closed. Smiling, you know, knowing that I couldn't get reach anyone. Ornette, as it turned out, after they took me away, remained at the airport and tried to reach the American ambassador, who wouldn't do anything. He said that the American government uh, had very many uh, economic and political dealings with Portugal, that the main NATO base was there, that it was very embarrassing to the government what I had said, and that I was on my own. Later, he uh, persuaded them to send the uh, cultural attaché to the prison to retrieve me, and I was very happy. (laughs) Yeah. my wife had just given birth to triplets back in New York, and it was a very traumatic birth, and I was going to cancel a European tour before I even left New York, and she persuaded me to go. And and then after I was arrested, um, I thought maybe I'd never see my kids. You know, I was really actually uh, crying, you know, and uh, I didn't know whether I would even live or not. But now looking back on it, it even though it was very scary and... And very frightening. I I know I would do it again, mm-hmm. and I'm glad that I did it. And especially after they invited me back when uh, they elected a, a new government there, and they invited me to come and play at the festival uh, of the communist newspaper Avante. I went and and played with some French musicians that I had never played with before in front of forty thousand people when I started to play, when I came out on the stage, people started chanting my name, 40,000 people, Charlie, Charlie, and it was really unbelievable
0: feeling to hear that, you know. Charlie Hayden, recorded in 1983. Here's a track from Hayden's first Liberation Music Orchestra album. This is Song for the United Front, written by Hans Eisler and Bertal Brecht. ¶¶ Hayden's Liberation Music Orchestra, recorded in 1969. Remember how Hayden explained that his triplet daughters were born shortly before he was arrested in Portugal? After a break, we'll hear how the triplets sounded singing beautiful harmonies together on a Charlie Hayden album from 2008. And we'll hear an excerpt of the interview Hayden recorded that year about singing on his parents' country music radio show. This is Fresh Air. The next interview we're going to hear with the great jazz player and composer Charlie Hayden was recorded in 2008. From the ages of 2 to 15, Hayden sang on his family's country music radio show. In 2008, he returned to that music on his album Rambling Boy, which featured vocals by his triplet daughters, his son, his son-in-law Jack Black, and his wife Ruth Cameron. Here's a track with Hayden and the triplets
2: hear a voice call
0: That's Charlie Hayden and his triplet daughters, Tanya, Petra, and Rachel, from Hayden's album Ramblin' Boy. When I spoke with him after the album was released in 2008, I asked him about the biggest surprise on the album, this recording of him at the age of two singing on his family's country music radio show where he was nicknamed Cowboy Charlie. He's introduced by his father.
3: Honey, say good morning to all the little boys and girls. Say hello, all you little boys and girls. Say, say, I'm just fine. I'm just fine. Just fine. And say, I've got a brand new song to sing for you this morning. i This morning. This morning. There you are. All right. Little Charlie has had so many, many requests to sing that dandy little song, Roll Us Over the Tide. And then Mama's going to take him out and get his big bottle of soda pop. So you sing real loud and nice here and a nice yodel. All right. Thank you, honey, friend. That was little two year old cowboy Charles Edwards
0: singing. Rose over the- Charlie, that is just about the most adorable thing I've ever heard, <laughs> especially the yodel. <laughs> what goes through your mind when you hear it?
1: I remember being there, and I remember my mother holding me, my dad uh, uh, telling me, you know, he's going to go get me a big bottle of soda pop if I sing. You know, it brings back really wonderful memories to me and of course that's a radio show from 1939 which was really edited to get it on the record it we didn't have that much space so you don't hear the commercials my father was giving you know for wait's green mountain cough syrup and sparkle light cereal and uh, Allstate insurance and and all the songs that my brothers and sisters sang and the song that you hear me singing and yodeling is really cut very short you don't hear the verse you just hear the chorus right before i yodel
0: how old do you think you were before you could sing on pitch?
1: <laughs> <sighs> well, my mom told me this story. She was rocking me to sleep. I'm 22 months old, and she's humming all these hillbilly songs, and all of a sudden I start humming the harmony. And she said, wow, you're ready for the show.
0: God, that's so amazing. <laughs> so, Charlie, would you share one of your favorite memories of your family's country radio show
1: from when you were, you know, a child? Every day was like a, a great experience for me. I just loved it. I, You know, w- when we were in Shenandoah, uh, we were there until I was four, and then we moved to Springfield, Missouri. My dad got a farm near my grandmother's, near his mother's place, and we did our radio show from the farmhouse. And my brothers and sisters would go out and do the chores, milk the cows, and come in, have breakfast, and my dad would crank the phone. Uh, on the wall to let the engineer in Springfield know that we were ready to go on the air, and we'd do the show. And every day was like a wonder to me. You know, I just loved it. And then we moved to Springfield, and we did all the shows from KWTO studios, which was I loved that so much I couldn't wait to get there. The, the double glass windows and the the acoustic tile and the air conditioning and all the entertainers and you know that I met. I can't really pinpoint one day. I can just pinpoint the whole thing.
0: What made you think of doing a family album of your own? Of course, this
1: music's been inside me since I stopped uh, country music and started in jazz when I was 15, and and uh, I had, have this music in me, inside me, and I... Have always thought about playing and singing again. I had to stop singing when I was 15 because I had bulbar polio that paralyzed my vocal cords. And that's when I started playing. And um, when I play jazz, the, the folk and hillbilly music comes out of me in one way or another in different improvisational ways. And of course, I hadn't done any country music since I was 15. And... I was, you know, a little bit apprehensive and a little bit nervous about whether I could really pull this off. You know, I'm, I'm a jazz musician for 50 years. So the first rehearsal we had over at the house with Ruth and, and the kids, and I was, you know, blown over about how great they were. I mean, they all sang with such great intonation. I played all these Stanley Brothers songs for them and the Carter family songs and Jimmy Martin and they just, took to it as if they'd been doing it every day, you know, the girls and Josh.
0: Charlie Hayden recorded in 2008. He got off to a musical start at the age of two, singing on his family's country music radio show. In the late 50s, he kicked off a jazz revolution playing with the original Ornette Coleman Quartet. He also played beautiful, melodious music. He was incredibly versatile, but one constant was he played from the heart. This is an excerpt of our 1992 interview when he released his album Haunted Heart with his band Quartet West. The album featured standards and original compositions evoking the atmosphere of classic film noir and the Los Angeles of the 1940s as described by Raymond Chandler. Hayden moved to L.A. from Missouri in 1956. Our interview started with this track, Lady in the Lake, written by Alan Broadbent, who's featured on piano. <laughs>
1: I've always felt that I I was born in the wrong era. Really, I, I wanted to be to be friends with John Garfield, for instance. He was one of the only actors that that refused to testify in front of the House Un-American Activities Committee back in the when the Hollywood Ten was happening, uh, McCarthy period. And and uh, I wish I could have been friends with Charlie Parker and played with him. You know, that's that's my period. I I I feel real close to the 40s. And actually, I was born in 37, so I was a kid singing on the radio in the 40s. But I I always dreamed of going to big cities, you know, uh, uh, from the Midwest. And I I used to stand in front of the mirror with my brother's raincoat on and uh, and my dad's hat and dream that I was in New York on Broadway, you know, walking down (laughs) the street at night.
0: That's great. In the liner notes for the new Quartet West album, um, you quote a passage from um, the Raymond Chandler 1949 novel, The Little Sister. This is a passage about how Los Angeles was changed by Hollywood. Reading that passage about how Los Angeles was changing made me wonder what Los Angeles was like for you when you left the Midwest as a young man to go to Los Angeles.
1: I had been uh, raised, you know, in the Midwest and and a small-town, rural kind of uh, thing, Um, and getting into L.A. was was kind of an overwhelming experience for me. Uh, It was very, very exciting and very wonderful, and um, I uh, started playing right away with uh, very, very good musicians, which was lucky for me because I found out as I went along that the way you really learn the art form of jazz is to learn it from musicians who are really great and are dedicated uh, uh, to the art form. And um, And I merged into the nightlife uh, very quickly and started playing so much that I had to drop out of school because I was cutting classes in the mornings. I was getting home very late and sleeping late. and. My career just took off from there, as far as uh, you know, playing with people like Hampton Hawes and Sonny Clark and Dexter Gordon and, and Art Pepper and then Paul Blay and then Ornette.
0: Did you leave home, or did your family come with you to Los Angeles?
1: Oh no, I left home. I <clears throat> I loved uh, you know Missouri, and but it was a very racist uh, part of the country, and I couldn't leave fast enough to tell you the truth. I, I knew that there was nothing I could do to make it better. While I, while I was there, if I wanted to make it better and improve the country, uh, I had to do it through the music, and and, mm-hmm. a, and in order to do that, I had to go somewhere where the music was happening, and and uh, and I left.
0: You know what I find really interesting? Your, your first records with uh, with Ornette Coleman were were regarded as very far out, very avant-garde, like nothing that had come before, very controversial, not only in jazz, but even people who didn't listen to much jazz (laughs) found it controversial. And listening to this record and hearing you talk about it, um, you know, I get a sense of someone who's really very much steeped in the past as well. And, you know, you said that uh, you, you sometimes wish that you had, you know, been part of the 40s, you know, that you thought you were you were in the mm-hmm. wrong era, and I find mm-hmm. it kind of paradoxical that, on the one hand, you know your music has been so forward-looking, and on the other hand, you feel so rooted and even nostalgic for the past.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Well, I think it's very important to live in the present. Uh, one of the great things that improvising teaches you is the the, uh, the magic of the moment that you're in, and the importance of living in the moment. The artist is very lucky because. In an art form that's spontaneous like that, uh, that's when you really see your true self, you know. And that's why, you know, when I put down my instrument, the challenge—that's when the challenge starts. Because to live, to to learn how to be that kind of human being at that level that you are when you're playing or when you're approaching playing—that's the key, you know. That's the hard part. And uh, when I put my instrument down, I'm in t- I'm in trouble, you know. I I try to live up to that level of uh, of being a musician and being close to music. But uh, as far as being nostalgic, I think it's important to remember beautiful things in the past.
0: Bass player and composer Charlie Hayden recorded in 1992. We'll hear a 1996 interview with him after a short break. This is Fresh Air. This next interview is from 1996 after the release of another album by Hayden's band Quartet West. Hayden loved songs and singers. As a child, he sang on his family's country music radio show. But at the age of 15, he got polio and had to stop singing.
1: I had uh, bulbar polio, <clears throat> which there was an epidemic going on in 52. We were in Omaha, Nebraska. We had a television show there. This was right before my dad retired from uh, from music. And uh, I I got this virus and... and uh, it paralyzed i was really lucky actually because most of the hospitals were filled with polio patients and and it was all uh paralyzed lung function and and legs and and mine hit my vocal cords for some reason my the left side of my my throat and my face i eventually the doctor said i was a very lucky guy and i eventually got over it and and But the thing that I couldn't do anymore, the range in my voice uh, kind of left me. I, I couldn't sing. I loved singing, but uh, I wasn't able to sing anymore.
0: Charlie Hayden, recorded in 1996. I don't know what I was thinking when after hearing about how polio forced him to stop singing, I asked him to sing. Here's what led me to ask. You end the album with something called Now Is The Hour. It's the title track of the record. And uh, you say it's a it's a Maori farewell song. How did you learn the song? And tell us something about it.
1: It was a very well known song during World War II because it was it depicted you know the guy going off to war and his wife saying you know when you when you come back I'll be waiting for you and but we must say goodbye now and and uh, I just love this song and then I was speaking to Alan Broadbent who's from New Zealand. About the song and he said, you know, that's a Maori folk farewell song. And I said I said, Well, I guess that's where it came from. You know, so I, I knew then what we had to do it because Alan also was close to the song, and so we did.
0: Would you sing the song as you remember it?
1: <clears throat> well, I'll try. Um now is
3: the hour when we must say goodbye. Soon you'll be sailing far across the sea While you're away, oh, then remember me When you return, you'll find me waiting
1: here
0: That's a really lovely song.
1: Yeah, I think it's beautiful.
0: Well, let's hear your version of it on your new CD. Now is the hour. And Charlie Hayden, thank you so much for talking with us.
1: My pleasure, Terry. Thanks for playing the music.
0: After we recorded that interview, I found out this was the first time Hayden had sung in public since polio had forced him to stop singing at the age of 15. According to the liner notes that Oren Keepnews wrote for a Hayden album a couple of years after our interview, it was because I persuaded Hayden to sing on fresh air and then called him and urged him to sing on his next album that he actually did. That album was his 1999 album, The Art of the Song, which featured singers Shirley Horn and Bill Henderson. But the final track featured Hayden singing in a small voice, but with deep emotion. It means the world to me that our interview played a part in getting him to sing again. He explained the story from his perspective when we spoke in 1999. Well, I want to get to your vocal on your new CD. Your new CD is called The Art of the Song and you chose two of your favorite singers to do most of the performances, Shirley Horn and Bill Henderson. But the last track is is you singing and um, you, as a rule, don't sing on your CDs. I think this is your first recorded performance outside of the years when you sang with your family. When you were a child your family had a, a country group and used to sing on the radio. So tell us the story about how you decided to sing on your own CD?
1: I stopped singing on our show uh, when I was fifteen. I developed bulbar polio, and it paralyzed my vocal cords. Uh, eventually, you know, I, I I got my vocal cords back, but th- I lost the range in my voice. And and uh, I used to sing every day on our radio show from the time I was two until I was fifteen. And after that uh, occurrence, I kind of uh, focused all my musical melody energy and in, into my playing. I never really uh, thought about singing again after that. I didn't even sing in the shower. You know, I, I I it wasn't that I was afraid to, it was just like it was over, you know, for me. So, it, it, recently some people have been talking about, you know, you used to sing how come you don't sing anymore or, or sing? you know, Ruth my wife who's a singer has s- said, you know, why don't you sing and Actually, one day I was on your show a while ago and uh, we were talking about Now is the Hour and you asked me to sing it. And I was very reluctant and I couldn't believe that you asked me. And I finally gave in and sang and you called back later and said that you thought it was great and that I should sing sometime on one of my records. And, and I said, well, thanks for the complimentary. but And, you know, I just got it. It was kind of humorous to me and and I never really took it seriously until we started planning this record and I was going through music and I ran across some of our music from our radio show with my family back in the 40s and, and I, I saw this song called The Wayfaring Stranger that my mom used to sing on our show and I remembered how beautiful it was and I thought about doing it on the record instrumentally and then I thought, you know, this isn't a song for Shirley or Bill to sing but it should really be sung because the words are so beautiful because I remembered when my mom sang it and and so I said, well, the only w- way it could be sung is if I sing it and I thought, you know, oh my goodness, that's not going to work <laughs> and, and uh, Alan was over and I played it for him. I said, what do you think of this? And he said, wow, that is really beautiful. I said, what would you think if I tried to sing it? And he said, wow, he said, that'd be different. And I said, so. <laughs> so
0: <laughs> what do you mean by that? <laughs> yeah,
1: I said, well, you know, and, and I even, um, I called Jean-Philippe Allard, ex- our pr- executive producer in Paris, and I said, you know, I I might sing on this record. And there was a big silence. And he said, <laughs> he said pardon? I said, I might sing. And, and another long silence, pardon? I said, <laughs> anyway, I told Alan, I said, write the arrangement as if somebody's going to sing it, and if I don't make it, I'll play it on the bass, you know. And uh, so we got into the studio, and I just got up to the microphone, and they started to play it, and I sang. And um, Shirley Horn came in to me, and she said, you've got to put this on the record. And I said, are you really serious? She said, yes. And she said, some of those string players out there are in tears. <laughs> I said, well, I, that's probably because it's so bad, you know. She said, no. So, uh... <laughs> So I put it on the record and I hope people like it. It's it's not doing it as a singer, it's doing it to tell a story of, you know, where I come from and
0: Well, I I really love this and I'm so glad that you you went through with singing it and listening to it. I was wondering, you know, knowing that you knew this song as a kid and that your mother sang it. When you were a child, what did the words mean to you? This song is just filled with metaphors about death, you know, crossing over the River Jordan, I'm going home to see my mother, I'm going home to see my father. What did you get about that, and what did was it a a frightening song to you, thinking about death, or what?
1: No, it it actually is a very soothing song. It's just the opposite of me. It's a song about life. Mm -hmm. I remember um, a very funny thing that my mom told me once when I was four years old. uh, she was working around our... We lived on a farm outside Springfield, Missouri, and she was working around the house, and all of a sudden she heard me screaming in the living room. And she thought, you know, I'd done something horrible had happened to me. She ran in the living room. She said, Charlie, what's wrong? And I looked up at her and I said, I'm going to die. <laughs> and she said, what in the world are you talking about? And she said, you're thinking about... She said, you don't have... She was, like, cracking up, you know, so... Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, I always have this this deep uh, need for the beauty of life, the reason for life, and 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 the preciousness of life, you know, and and how precious every moment is that we're alive, and and we should really do everything that we can to enhance this life th- that we have and this planet that we live on, and uh, and this song just evokes that to me.
0: Well, I do hope you sing more. And I want to thank you for talking with us And um, um, why don't we end with A recording of The Wayfaring Stranger From your new CD, The Art of Song And my guest has been Charlie Hayden Thank you, Charlie
1: Thanks, Terry I am
3: a poor Wayfaring stranger A wandering through this world of woe And there's no sin nest toil, or danger In that bright world To which I
0: Charlie Hayden, from his album The Art of the Song. It was released in 1999, the year we recorded the interview you just heard. Charlie Hayden died in 2014 at the age of 76. Our series of some of our favorite music interviews from our archive will continue tomorrow with Jay-Z and Lizzo. After we take a short break, our TV critic David Bianculli will review the new FX series The Patient, starring Steve Carell. This is fresh air. Two executive producers of the FX drama series The Americans have reteamed to create and write a new 10-part drama premiering today on Hulu. It's called The Patient and stars Steve Carell as a therapist who's abducted by a serial killer. The killer, played by Donald Gleason, orders the therapist to cure him of his deadly tendencies or else. Our TV critic David Bianculli has this
4: review. If you had to describe The Patient, this new 10-episode series from writers Joel Fields and Joe Weisberg, in 10 words or less, it might be something like this. In Treatment meets Dexter. In the HBO series In Treatment, you had intimate one-on-one conversations between a therapist and their patients. In Showtime's Dexter, you had a serial killer who tried to channel his murderous impulses and kill other serial killers. In Hulu's The Patient... You sort of have both. In the patient, we have a murderer who abducts a therapist, Alan Strauss, whose books on psychology he's read and liked. After attending a few sessions in Alan's office to feel him out, pretending to be a patient named Jean, the murderer, whose real name is Sam, makes Alan his captive. He knocks him out, and Alan regains consciousness chained by the ankle to the floor of the basement in Sam's secluded home. Sam's idea is that the two of them will undergo some intense and intensive therapy sessions, quickly curing Sam of his homicidal tendencies. Sam is played by Donal Gleason, who played Bill Weasley in the Harry Potter films. Steve Carell from The Office, in a totally dramatic role, plays the therapist Alan, who understandably recoils at this extremely unusual arrangement. Gene, Sam. You have to listen to me.
5: I am listening. I am listening. I know how to listen. I understand this is upsetting for you. I get that. It's a little scary. But this is the only way that I could... I, I need help. I want help. I'm asking you for, for help. You said therapy can't work if I'm not truthful. I know that you're right, so... No, no, you don't understand. I don't... I don't think you know what you're doing to me. I realize it might take you a little time to get used to what's happening here. Whatever is troubling you, we can address it, but not here, not like this. Dr. Strauss, I have much bigger problems than your other patients. I have a compulsion to kill people. (sighs) A compulsion. Yeah, I do it. (laughs) Sam, I don't mean just once or twice. Every once in a
4: while, I just do it. They do, of course, begin a series of sessions, or else there's no TV series. But it's the way this story unfolds and expands that makes it noteworthy. What sounds like a two-person drama becomes, little by little, more than that. This very contained universe, with so much of it set in one finished basement, opens up a lot, thanks to flashbacks and dream sequences that give us insight not only into Sam's life, but into Alan's. Both of them, it turns out, have family issues to unravel sam the killer has a father who abused him as a boy and alan the therapist has a son who rebelled against his parents by following a different religious path and added to all that are real life characters who occasionally intrude upon sam's homemade basement prison or are shown interacting with him outside as the patient unfolds it gets more intense the stakes rise and so does the body count And because this is a one-season, limited series, there's no guarantee that even the main characters will survive, adding measurably to the sense of jeopardy. That unpredictability is a crucial ingredient here, and so is the constant re-examination of motives and the past. For Alan to literally talk his way out of his potentially deadly circumstances, he has to probe deeply into Sam's head, but also his own. By the time the series is over, the very title of the patient has a multiple meaning. The patient easily could refer to more than one person, and, arguably, more than two. How that happens, and why, is what makes the patient so watchable throughout. Sam, the killer, is the one seeking treatment, but by the time this drama is over, nearly everyone in this drama reflects upon past actions and decisions or dies trying.
0: David Bianculli is a professor of television studies at Rowan University in New Jersey. He reviewed the new FX series, The Patient. Tomorrow on Fresh Air, we'll continue our week-long series featuring some of our favorite music interviews from the archive. We'll hear interviews with Jay-Z and Lizzo. I hope you'll join us. Fresh Air's executive producer is Danny Miller. Our technical director and engineer is Audrey Bentham. Our interviews and reviews are produced and edited by Amy Salad, Phyllis Myers, Sam Brigger, Lauren Krenzel, Heidi Simon, Teresa Madden, Anne Rebo Thea Chaloner, Seth Kelly, and Susan Yucundi. Our digital media producer is Molly C.V. Nesberg. Roberta Shorrock directs the show. I'm Terry Gross.